Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome into this special edition of the Arkham Files. Thank you for joining us. We're doing something different than our standard actual play session and changing things up for this episode. We had the singular opportunity to spend over an hour having a conversation with a very special guest and a legend in the gaming industry. It was one of the coolest conversations all of us have ever had, and we are sharing that conversation with you. You didn't ask, but before we get into it, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how this conversation came to be. We recently played our very first Dungeons & Dragons crossover session, which we will be releasing to all of you soon. But since we are a Call of Cthulhu podcast, we had to play D&D with a Mythos twist. Stay tuned for that session. It was a ton of fun, and we will be releasing those episodes within the next couple of weeks. I'll leave his full intro for the conversation. But in addition to a huge list of other accomplishments, our guest wrote and published the Cthulhu Mythos adaptation for Dungeons & Dragons 5e that we use for our session. So in the lead up to the release of our D&D session, we asked him to come on and talk about that product. And as a bonus, he was gracious enough to talk to us about a ton of other topics too. So without further nonsense from me, I'll let Alex take it away and introduce our guest for this special episode of The Arkham Files. Welcome, everybody, to the Arkham Files. Thanks for joining us. We are your favorite actual play Call of Cthulhu podcast, but today we got something a little different coming for you. Uh, we're not playing a game today because we have a, we are fortunate, incredibly fortunate to have a very special guest. Uh, our guest today, he got his start in the gaming industry with Chaosium in 1980. He is the primary creator of the game we all know and love, The Call of Cthulhu. Even if that was the only thing he ever did, it would put him in the top tier of game creators of all time. But the list goes on. Uh, 
He worked on RuneQuest and, RuneQuest and Stormbringer for Chaosium. He also wrote Ghostbusters, the RPG, with Greg Stafford. And I'm still just talking about his work in the 80s. So moving on from there, he got into the video game industry where he worked on some of the greatest and most influential works of all time. Uh, I'm talking about games like Doom and most of the Doom series, Quake, Civilization, Halo Wars, and last, of not, last but not least, the Age of Empires series. And finally, in 2013, he founded Peterson Games, creating and releasing a lot of other great games like the highly acclaimed Cthulhu Wars. And fi finally... The primary subject of why we asked him on today, the Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for 5e, which we recently used to play a session and which is soon to be released also. So stay tuned for that and loved. And if you haven't guessed it already, I am, of course, talking about the gaming legend, the man behind the mythos, uh, Mr. Sandy Peterson himself. Sandy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for making the time and, and hanging out with us here on the Arkham Files. I am happy to be here. I suspect that the that your audience figured out it was me when you said that I authored Sandy P Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu <laughs> Mythos for five years. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty good away. clue. <laughs> a little bit of a giveaway. Yeah. We're we're about to release the second edition for uh, uh, Pathfinder of that book, mm -hmm. and because um, we right. did a Pathfinder one too, as well as the five E, right? But mm -hmm. and we ju yeah. just released Skin Deep which is a 280-page campaign. Wow. Um, wow. <laughs> uh, including the, the Sand Dwellers, which are the, like a justly neglected monster, but I tried to make them scary for this. <laughs> That's good. I would like to see them get the uh, neglect or <laughs> the, the spotlight for once and yeah, hopefully right, turn them exactly, into something. Exactly, because I, I mean, the, I actually have a video on my... Uh, YouTube channel, which anyone curious, it's Sandy of Cthulhu, no breaks uh, about the sand dwellers and why they are so lame and how I try to make them. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody can do it, it's you. Well, <laughs> well, you you'd have to look at um, skin deep to see if I succeeded, but uh, it starts out with Jack the Ripper style killings and ends in the violent dimension and all kinds of crazy things. But Ooh, That sounds yeah. awesome. Is that you upcoming? You play Call of Cthulhu. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I admit I haven't listened to your podcast, but, <laughs> but okay, we haven't listened will. to it either. <laughs> um, yeah, we we primarily play Call of Cthulhu, and it, this was actually the very first time we played D&D. &D. This was our first foray into D&D &D for our show and actually for most of the guys in the group. Um, and so we figured, hey, we're a Call of Cthulhu show. If we're going to try out D&D, &D, we should do some Call of Cthulhu D&D. &D. So um the your book had been on my radar for a while you know i've had it I, I i bought the pdf and so it's been something i've been wanting to run so i was like hey if we're going to be branching out trying anything new then this has got to be the ticket right here the the two things i am most proud of in that book and if you've read it you may know this are the way that i display the uh, the great old ones and the outer gods which is mm -hmm. as environmental effects that intensify over time which right. I think that's a really cool way. So when Cthulhu's there, it's not just, oh, there's a, it's Godzilla, let's shoot him. It's more like at first, like the angles start going wrong and then there's the telepathy making you hallucinate and then things start creeping out of portals and, you know, and eventually it goes to the point where if you try to run away, you go in a circle because all the angles are wrong and right. you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, the, and the other thing I'm really proud of is my, is my explanation of how the cults work. Yeah. Because... Almost every, a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people, I assume not you guys get the cults a little bit wrong. They make them like regular cults that are like 
I mean, they're fanatics, but they don't really, I mean, Cthulhu's cults don't really have a theology, right? They're, they're fundamentally atheist. Right. Um, they're all in it for what they are going to get right now. Uh, almost mm. more like the Elks Club than uh, like an evil Elks Club. Yeah. <laughs> than, than a real religion. But yeah. Uh, anyway. So, also, there you go, guys. Pro tip right here. All your cults should be like an evil Elks Club or like the Shriners. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, why they have the antlers and stuff, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, and that actually so was something I was... in Utah and I come yeah. up to Utah periodically. So we should... We should get together on one of these times. Oh, absolutely! Uh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can I can get you guys to play my my terror paths game. Anytime um, you are free, we will drop everything we have. <laughs> <laughs> I will quit my job and everything. Well, you think my hangouts are in uh, Utah Valley, Spanish Fork, Provo, that area, because that's where the the grandkids and the and my parents live. Uh, wherever uh, that's, that's, that's where we will grand- be. The yeah. granddaughters, right? Yeah, um, we're not we're not too far. I work. Um, uh, Seth and I both work in Utah Valley, and so um, yeah, it's not too far at all. And again, it's definitely worth the trip. So we we will be there. <laughs> yeah, I'm down in the Moab area, but I mean that's basically there. Well, I have to drive to, to get there, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, yeah, I had right. a family reunion in Moab uh, a couple of years ago. We were playing my games. Oh, nice. That's awesome. That's my yeah, that's awesome. kids like my games. And so we'll have to, well, we'll have I to make it another family. Reunion, by me family. They're good. Well, as long as we can <laughs> stop at the BYU creamery, I'm in for whatever you want to do. Oh yeah. Orange Cremo boy. That's the thing that, that, I, that you can't get outside Utah. Oh man. No, you uh, can't. That's what we live for. It's in we our do know us. <laughs> as great as Bluebell and Blue Bunny ice cream are here in Texas, they don't have orange Cremo. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no. it's it's all orange stuff for us. Orange cremo and fry sauce running in our veins up here in Utah. <laughs> yes, yes. In fact, uh, I was at a I was at the Gen Con convention, which, as you know, there's a big Chaosium presence and there's a Peterson game presence too. And mm-hmm. uh, we went to a restaurant, and they were serving on the menu. There was funeral potatoes and fry sauce, <laughs> and we were like. What? And so we asked yeah. the waitress, is there a Utah connection here? Like, yeah, the chef was, <laughs> the chef was <laughs> so, like, And everyone else in my company is like, what are funeral potatoes? I said, order them. You'll like it. You know, what's fry sauce? Don't worry about it. Just get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's the chef walks out. Chef walks out in black pants and white button up shirt, black tie, name tag. <laughs> <laughs> um, the owner dropped by, but because uh, we had a big table of, you know, the game guys, but that was also awesome because they had a um, they they did a special thing for the fact that Gen Con was going on the big you know biggest game commission in America right mm-hmm. and so they had they had like pulled orc uh, buns <laughs> right and then they had dragon wings three flavors lawful neutral and chaotic so that was <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome so that was that, awesome. that was pretty great and they also had had uh, Mountain Dew on on uh, uh, on tap. On tap, yeah, on tap. <laughs> so they were really going all out for. But the next year, they got a new um, manager, and he didn't want any of that kid stuff. So then they saw oh. they did badly. Well, he's- well, Mount, Mountain Dew will get those Mormons real hyped up. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the gaming thing, right? The gamers, they right. Yeah, the Mountain Mountain Cove, right? Or in yeah. Texas, diet Dr Pepper. It's the lifeblood of the <laughs> industry. That's right. That sounds like he hates fun. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it's like you don't want Mountain Dew at you know, a gaming convention. And that's, and that's the, the paradox place, so. of Call of Cthulhu in that I, I, I always 
ran the game or played or all the everything I write for it, I do straight. Like it's this awful, terrifying experience. But then when I play it or I see people play it, everyone's laughing, having having a good time. <laughs> Some awful thing comes and sucks off another player's head, and is, there's like giggles, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to. But you can't. You don't. You have to play it straight for that to work. You know. Right. Yeah, that's actually our podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's something I I'm I'm the primary uh keeper for the show and so uh-huh. so that's that's what I try to do when I'm running the games is that I, I have to try and play it as straight as possible because these guys are are the ones that are going to be trying to take it off the Oh yeah, yeah, my, my I mean my players are are Looney Tunes too, right? As you might imagine yeah. they're they've grown long in the tooth playing my games. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, well, actually well go ahead. Oh, I was no, going to say, we, we run it off the rails pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that happens in my games. My, my usual technique is I set up problems for the players and I don't bother with figuring out the solutions because that's their job. And then they have to figure out the solutions on their own to whatever problem I throw them. And uh, that makes some notes. That way I get surprised, you know, they get mm-hmm. surprised. Sometimes they think it's insoluble. And I said, you know, well, it's called Cthulhu, you know, so sometimes Cthulhu yeah, eats get, the world. Get a helmet. Um, but uh, in fact, um, Call of Cthulhu kind of exists in a good way because of the idea of keeping it straight. Because what happened is uh, way back when in 1980, um, Chaosium got the license to do Lovecraft. At that time, Lovecraft wasn't public domain yet, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it was 40 years ago, right? Um, right. So, it was, so they got the license and um, then they then... I found out they had the license and I wanted to do something with the game. So what happened? The thing is that in 1980, everyone hated Lovecraft. Okay. It was, he was vanishingly obscure. Every single person I knew who had read Lovecraft had learned about him from me. And this might've been partly because I lived in Utah, right? Mm-hmm. But where they don't read a lot of horror stories, but you know, just people didn't read Lovecraft and people that, that knew about books thought he was a terrible hack. So, um, but, and Chaosium, everyone at Chaosium thought he was a terrible hack too. None of them had read him. Lovecraft is not an author you have to read to have an opinion about, right? So yeah. they just like, oh yeah, Lovecraft's terrible. But they knew I loved Lovecraft. And the thing is, what, what any lesser company would have done is they would have done the game themselves and been snarky about it. You know, kind of the way that, uh, like, like the first two Batman movies back in the eighties were good and the guy respected it. Then he goes on to like Batman and Robin and stuff. And, and, and the, right. the directors, no one can take this seriously. I'll just make fun of it. Right. right. And then all at once the whole thing tanks and you have bat nipples in the bat credit card. And, right? <laughs> right, Same yeah. thing happened with the original Christopher Reeves super Superman. First one's good. Then they started making fun of the genre because yeah, they thought no one respected it. Right. Well, Chaosium so knew that if they themselves. did it, they wouldn't respect it and they'd be snarky and it wouldn't, properly mimic Lovecraft because they couldn't take it seriously, but they said, Sandy loves it. He'll do it right. And they were humble enough to give it to me because they knew they'd screw it up. And uh, of course, <laughs> since then they decided Lovecraft was cool after all, especially when it became like 85% of the sales. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it was a, uh, but, but I didn't know they didn't like Lovecraft. I just, I assumed that who doesn't like Lovecraft. I, I was thinking, right. But they, they did not. And, uh, the three things that got me the job were that I loved Lovecraft. They do. I do a good job. Second, that I'd never missed a deadline. 
and the third that I'd always delivered on the, the, the few other projects I'd done. So those are, I didn't know that at the time. That's what they told me afterwards. Right. Um, now, your so, resume is pretty okay. I was, I'll say so myself. <laughs> yeah. It's not too shabby. It's we not too shabby. I don't know if you've heard the story of how the sanity system came to be. But, no, uh, I haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was trying to think of a way to make the monsters even scarier. And I knew that Lovecraft's guys are always fainting dead away and going mad. And so I, I worked up the sanity system. And my idea was that it would be just kind of another weapon the monsters used. They have tentacles and they have spells and they and they can and they can blast your mind, right? But I didn't mm-hmm. realize the the ramifications of this. So the very first time I tested this system, this wasn't actually in California um, when I was going to grad school there. And so I played it and the characters are playing the haunted house scenario. You've all played it, right? The Corbett house. Yeah. So with the killer well, bed upstairs. So they go into that and they're trying to figure out what's haunting the house and they find a book. And the book says, has a spell, how to summon malign being from beyond and they still not talk themselves into thinking that this was the thing haunting the house but it was like a dimensional shambler right so they get in the basement and they said we want to cast a spell and i said well you got to have black cats heads and bottles of holy water and what i just made up stuff and they because i didn't have a so they so they're casting the spell and i say you hear a sound in the air it starts to tear apart something's coming through and at this point the players said i i cover my eyes I run in the corner and hide my face. I'm running upstairs. <laughs> and until that moment, I didn't realize that the sanity rules would make players behave as though their characters were actually afraid. And that's yeah, when that's I knew awesome. I was onto something. I mean, it was, I, 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 I guess you could say I lucked out, but I really recognized how good that was. I said, ah, oh, they're acting afraid. And you don't have that in most uh, games unless the players like are really doing a good job on the character which in 1980 no mm. one was right we were all <laughs> doing games but the sanity system made people act afraid and be cautious about going somewhere what if there's something really bad and i see it it'll go crazy it you'd never have that happen in D. you'd want to go see what the monster is well i mean of course D 5e i mean my cool business has that kind of effect but i had to put rules in for it you know <laughs> right. so anyway that was that was quite fortunate <clears throat> And that, you know, kind of became the uh, uh, the sign yeah, of Call of the, Cthulhu that you guys yeah, kind of the, the hallmark of the uh, of yeah. the game. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the thing that we experienced because Mr. Corbett was the very first scenario that we ran. It's actually then, a different Mr. Corbett that we ran. We ran the Mr. Corbett from Mount Mansions of Madness it is the very uh, first scenario on our podcast. This one, the current one's called The Haunting, which I've run. I right, it's now called The Haunting, not The Haunted House. Mm-hmm. yeah and, and it's I no got... longer in the core rule book i said it was in one of my casts but apparently it's been moved out of there but it's still available yeah i think they have it for free on the website and the yeah. quick start rules um uh, that's one question i had about uh so the the mythos for 5e you're talking about um so moving all the sanity mechanics and the sanity rules over into the D rules was that a challenge well i'll i will be um brutally frank um, my job on the 5e was not to know the 5e rules, but to know the lore. And I did all the background stuff. I said, here is how um, uh, Egolanac works. Okay, this is how Glocky works. This is how Cthul- This is how the cult of um, 
uh, of Shub Niggurath operates. And then I had a guy who knew 5e like the back of his hand, and he put in the rules to make it work that way. And then I read them afterwards. Okay, to see that's that, cool. To look, for, to look for any red flags. And if I saw him, I'd ask him, how does this work? And he'd explain, and i go, okay, that's good. Or, you know, that's bad. we got to do it a different way. So I actually, uh, so it may have been incredibly hard to uh, adapt it to, to 5e, <laughs> but he didn't complain to me. So I'm going uh, well, to assume that it was really easy and that I vastly overpaid him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did a great job. So the, the mechanics in there, there are There was awesome. multiple guys. There was editors that came in mm-hmm. afterwards. We had, we had, it was vetted a bunch to make sure that it was right. You know, yeah. I do know that the sanity rules in 5e are, more arduous to run than they are in Call of Cthulhu, I think, because just the the native having cl- character classes and levels and stuff and saving throws just made it more awkward to fit in the sanity rules. Right. I mean, it's pretty simple in Call of Cthulhu. You just roll the 100 and then lose some sanity and see if it's enough to make you become an NPC. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing with 5e <laughs> is it's just, you know, it's crunchy. D&D is more crunchy. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I think it's easier to be really horrifying with a, uh, a, a, a smoother running system. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah. And that know. is true. And I guess that's one thing is, uh, and you can um, do it in D and D obviously, but you know, right. Um, and that's one thing I, I did actually want to ask you about is, um, uh, you have the whole first part of the, of the book that's talking about, um, uh, how to, how to use the book really. And, yeah. and how to run horror, in heroic fantasy and you know you have your various tips in there like the uh basic rules for horror which i think are awesome and uh in this section too you mentioned how uh, when when you tend to add other genre elements into horror it tends to always flip it more into whatever that new genre is yeah um and so that was one thing i wanted to dive a little deeper on do you have any tips on that how do you how do you prevent that from happening how do you add in other genre elements, but still maintain it as being primarily horror? Um, well, <clears throat> it, I mean, it can be tough. The main one that, that, that is a danger to most players is turning it into an action movie because they're mm-hmm. unlikely to turn it into a rom-com, right? Right. <laughs> or, a, or a buddy movie. I mean, I guess they could, but usually it's action is the problem because the, mm-hmm. they, start, they start having a running fight with a bunch of chochos and then instead of being horrified by the terrible things the Cho shows, you are having this awesome running fight. Now that can be fun. And that, mm-hmm. you know, so maybe that's okay to have an occasional action sequence. Um, certainly there are horror movies, which nonetheless have action. For example, um, Phantasm 2. If you've seen that, there's a, there's, there's a pretty hefty action scene in a mortuary in there. Have, you, have any of you seen it? I haven't. Uh, we'll put it on the list. Okay, maybe it's a bad example. Um, what do you think? Uh, Looking at it right now. Donovan's going to watch. I'm not, wa- I'm not watching. It. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be an hour and a half. We can, we can come back yeah. an hour. Okay, it doesn't matter. Right. Anyway, yeah. the point is, there's an action uh, scene, but, the, <laughs> but it starts in horror. There's the action that goes back into horror. And I think the best way to do it, the way I've found, is that before I'm about to run an adventure, that then I. I think in my head some cool scenes I want to have happen in that adventure. And, um, and these scenes could be from a movie or a book or just something I had in a dream or just made up some scene, some confrontation or horrific thing. And then as the adventure goes by, I, I, 
plop those in. You know, the, the players open the bedroom and they find the, the hideously uh, distorted uh, uh, corpse of something like from the movie, the thing, right. Or whatever right. your thing is. And then these, these uh, uh, checkpoints, as it were, usually bring the players back into like, Oh, this is creepy. This is horror. You know, mm-hmm. also, if you throw them things that make them uh, think and worry and and have to puzzle it out, then that puts them back into the horror mode instead of let's pull out a gun. I'm not saying it's wrong to pull out a gun every time. Right. It's just mm-hmm. there's a lot of monsters in Call of Duty that don't really care if you pull out a gun. Here's an example. Right. So so one of the a game I ran way back, um, I, I stole a scene from the movie of all things. I married a monster from outer space. I don't know if any of you seen this movie, but it's about it's it's literally what it sounds like. Aliens come to town and they replace all the men. And so they can, like, I guess, have babies with the women or something. Anyway, there's a scene in it where this alien goes out on the balcony after his wedding night. And um, and he it, it looks like a dude. Right. But he's but he's standing there and suddenly there's a flash of lightning. And for a second, you can see the hideous Rugos alien face underneath. And they're very alien. Like you can't see mm-hmm. where the mouth is or anything. There's like tubes on it. And so, and you're like, whoa, that was a shock. So what I did in my game, the players found out that something terrible was happening up at the old castle and they go into the village and they say, we've got to go stop the things at the the castle, these terrible things. So the villagers said, yeah. So they're all trooping up the road with like rakes and torches and, you know, stuff. And the players are like, yeah, we're going to do this. And then there's a flash of lightning. And I took the players aside and I said, when lightning flashes, you see that the faces of the villagers are hideously distorted monsters. And they're only when the lightning flashes. And she said, um, mm. am I sure? Am I going insane? And then the, the players are like, started to talk to each other. And they were like, are, are they monsters? Do they know they're monsters? Have they always been monsters? Are they going to get us? Like, what's going on here? And then, and basically the, 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 se- the session went from the big action, everyone going there to burn the castle and kill the monster into the players trying to figure out how to get out of this this march on the castle because they no longer knew what was happening. And even when they escaped, they had to figure out what to do about the village. Is the village really all monsters? And it was, and, and the mystery there combined with the horror of all these guys we know might be monsters was, was effective in my, in my game with my players. Mm-hmm. Obviously your players, everyone's players are different, but that worked for me. Right. You know, there's also the time that the players were were searching through the, the, their house that they were that was haunted. Right. And they opened a closet and found one of them uh, tied up and gagged. But it was one of one of the people that found it was that same guy. So there was like two of him. And then that was kind of a. Uh, a problem for them to solve. And they kind of went from let's make sure the house is safe and then go kill the monster to is which one of us is real right you know like the thing or something so uh, yeah exactly so that's my thing i have a scene that breaks the action flow in a sense it's okay to have a little right and Mm -hmm. sometimes i just go ahead and have a lot of it just because it's fine to have a giant gun battle once in a while but uh uh, because you can't stay terrified throughout throughout the whole length of that's why movies have comic relief that's why Mm -hmm. you know i mean you can't you simply can't do it I, i learned this of all things, when I was first watching um, King Kong, the original King Kong from the 30s, and I'm watching it, and there's this long chase scene through the swamp where they're being eaten by dinosaurs, and they're being everything's going wrong. They're they're dropping like flies, 
And I noticed that partway through it, it's, it's, it's pretty scary, really, even by modern standards. Everyone, these people being killed by monsters, the people start to laugh. And it's because it's like 15 minutes of unrelenting people being killed. And you just can't, you just can't be scared for that long. You have to, right. you have to respond to it in some way. So it's okay. That's why the jokes my players have or the ear players have or an occasional action scene is okay as a release, but you have to make sure to go back into, into the horror. So for example, uh, Alien is a horror movie, right? And mm -hmm. Aliens is an action movie with horror elements. Right. And I think most competing horror games like Chill and the like were action things with horror elements, which is, what, which is why Call of Cthulhu survived them. Also, Call of Cthulhu was super contrarian, as you know. I mean, you don't right. get an EP, XP. You get worse as time goes on. Your big mm -hmm. prize is a moldy old book that makes you go crazy by looking at the pictures. Um, <laughs> you know, when you get a new magic power, you're you're worried, and the other guys start getting their guns loaded instead of being happy for you. Yeah. Um, I can that's... read your mind now. No one wants you to read their mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and speaking of Chaosium, back in the early days where you were saying they, they, they kind of gave you the trust uh, and the faith to let you run with this stuff. Was there any of these things when they started looking at this game that made them <laughs> have some second thoughts being like, hey, whoa, hold on. No, no XP. The, everybody's going crazy. Where are we well, going I with this? I think we city? all <laughs> thought that it was going to, they did, they did adjust, they did make me adjust the sanity rules and the very original first draft of it, which I probably would change it myself. Then you actually couldn't ever recover any sanity. Mm -hmm. um, and you just only went down until you died. And they, and they, they had me put in a way to get sanity back. But as you know, it's generally a, a death spiral, right? I mean, right. You lose more sanity than you get back. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and it, like you said, it absolutely affects the way that the players play the game as they go forward. I mean, in our most recent, uh, right. we have uh, in our most recent, you know, season or or scenario, we have a series of linked scenarios through the through our show. Is this the Santa Fe thing, or um, that's actually kind of a one off one shot. It's the okay. uh, the fall of New Jerusalem is our more in our okay. main campaign. Um, but yeah, so Seth's character is running really low on sanity, and it completely changed the way that he played through that whole scenario. Well, yeah, he seems shaky, mm -hmm. right? And, and presumably that's what's going on with the actual character Seth's playing is that now his nerves are shot. He's had a nervous right. breakdown. He's like, he can't take it, you know, and he's likely to go into hysterics and he may do it before he sees the monster just to keep himself alive, right? right. So it's it's very... Yeah, it's I mean, great. I mean, it even... That's how it's supposed like, to work. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there's this element of uh, I'm being too trepidatious because I'm so nervous and afraid and then... The next minute, I'm being way too over aggressive because I'm kind of losing it. Yeah. So the sanity rules, I think, help keep you help remind you in Call of Cthulhu that it's a horror game because, mm -hmm. like, you're, you're unlikely to go take your machine gun and go shooting a whole bunch of deep ones just because just seeing the the loathsome flopping horde of deep ones is going to be like hammering you with with sand loss. And uh, you know, no matter how much the, the the game master tries to mitigate it, it's it's still going to be troublesome. Yeah, that's one yeah, aspect of the game that I really love um, is the sanity and <clears throat> just that it's set in like a modern world. It yeah. definitely made me like adjust how I play the game um, because it it made me kind of uh, evaluate like if I myself were really in this scenario and this situation, how would I really react um, if I were seeing something like that, you know? And so it definitely uh, adds a cool aspect to the game. 
Well, and you actually lose. I mean, it's a simulation, but you lose sanity as you go because you don't want to lose more sanity. And so, like Alex said, you're more trepidatious about I don't want to go into this scenario because I'm going to lose more sanity. And if I do that, I'm going to lose control of my character. And if I'm lucky, that means he's going to run in the opposite direction. And so it it builds in the effect that you want to have. So the characters uh, or the 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 players themselves have to adjust the way they play to reflect the system of the game. It's it's brilliant and it's a ton of fun to play that way. You guys make fun of me for sitting in a diner <laughs> because I just got eaten by a deadlight. I know I got to give you some credit there. I'm, I'm a little afraid to play my main character now because insanity is getting so low. He's going to go crazy. Well, as I'm Good sure thing, Alex will back me up as a keeper, it also is a super awesome tool to uh, herd the players into or out of things that you want them to do to say, you know, They'll say, well, I'm going to shoot the postmaster because I'm pretty sure he's a zombie. And then you say, oh, you shot this person. It looks like he's a normal guy. Lose a D6 sanity. And then, ah, you know, it's a. <laughs> right. Yeah, it really is. It's an awesome mechanic. Yeah. As a, as a keeper to, to control the flow of the game and, and, you know, not necessarily want to railroad, but to kind of guide some direction. No, you don't have to rail. No, you don't. I, I don't want to railroad my guys. Like I said, I don't even tell, mm-hmm. I don't even know how they're going to get out of the scenario. Right. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But- which I love that you said that. Cause that's also one of my. One one of my biggest epiphanies I had when as just my experience as a game master was that exact one you said, where I make problems and you guys make solutions. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you. I, I I do think it takes some experience as a game master to reach that point, and also as players to reach that point. Because mm-hmm. I've gone to conventions and tried that technique, and the players are waiting for me to give them a hint as to where to go, and right. I don't have a hint for them. I want them to figure it out, you know. And they're like, they like okay, I'm going to sniff the fried chicken containers. I said, smells like, you know, like Kentucky fried, you know, and I'm going to look under behind the thing. And I say, okay, there is nothing more of value to be found here. (laughs) (laughs) They're trying to figure things out. And but they, instead of trying to figure them out, sometimes they are trying to get me to give them it, to tell them, because that's what they're used to in their campaign. Right. And um, which is why the scenario, like scenario packs are still useful because they, you know, they enable even a, a newer keeper to be able to uh, handle things. And of course, an advanced keeper knows how to bypass or over or utilize the, the things in the back. Right. So this just makes the job easier. Right. I mean, I'll spend time preparing a scenario, whether it's all from scratch or one of my published things. I just, if it's published, mm-hmm. I just build on top of it, you know, I had a that question was, about that. that was, oh, go, go ahead. Um, uh, you mentioned like when you run games and you've got these pre-published scenario packs, which are, are perfect for, for new keepers and new game masters or whatever. For you personally, when you run games, do you do you ever use pre-published scenarios at this point to see, hey, I want to see how this this so, this, or do you mostly just you know go with it and write your own um, exclusive? The problem is my my handicap is that I'm Sandy Peterson. And so <laughs> everyone expects that I have to run my own stuff. And if I run someone right. else's, they're kind of like, oh, okay, that's mm-hmm. nice. You know, and then I'm, <laughs> I feel guilty. So I pretty much have to run my own stuff. Um, and so I, and so I've put together a, a, a package, a package of, uh, I mean, you, you saw the, I basically, I write a scenario to a year for, mm-hmm. um, uh, for run at conventions that I go to and I play that scenario. And, um, and then actually the, uh, the, the 
Peterson's Abominations book published on Chaosium, it has seven of these scenarios that I did at conventions because I I played them at five or six conventions and then I figured once I start going to the first convention again because it was next year then I I guess, I guess that one's used up so I just put these into Peterson's Abominations so um, you can kind of see what my scenarios are like in there um, but I have a bunch that weren't that that haven't been used yet that I may still publish. Do you, um, do you ever get to be a player? I'm sure everybody always I almost never post. ever get to be a player. Um, occasionally, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a game because everyone says, you're Sandy Peterson, you must be the best game master, which I'm of course not. There's plenty of keepers who are better than me. Um, being, a game mas- being a game designer and being a game master are not a completely overlapping set of skills, right? Yeah. But, uh, but so, so uh, sometimes a uh, someone who's uh, who's renowned in his ability to play will get me in. Often they're sorry because I spend so much time being a game master that I don't always know how to be a good player. Because I'll I'll if I'll if I get a t- hint that something here is going to lead to something really disastrous, then I'll generally want to go ferret out the disastrous thing to to see what's happening and entertain myself. Yeah. Also, because I hardly ever am a player, I know my guy is not long for this world. I mean, it's going to be this scenario. Um, and then I probably won't use that guy again. So I don't have any, like Sam, you said, is afraid his main character will get killed. I would never have that fear. So yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that'd be the, the most fun guy to play along with because I get you into trouble, but, uh, but maybe that makes it more fun. Right. Hey, to That's me, Alex. That is fun. Yeah. That is <laughs> Alex all day, dude. And it's so annoying. Whenever I run a game, he knows exactly what I'm going to do. And he just exploits it and then kills everybody. <laughs> yeah, the last scenario, Alex killed me and our other brother that's not on the car right now. <laughs> he turned on us. <laughs> I think maybe that is an aspect of being a game master that never gets to be a player. <laughs> when you do get to be a player, it's it's well no that hard. And you so got this ring of down. power. My team of players, I've been playing with most of them for 28 years. Wow. So they know me extremely well and i have to keep on my toes to surprise them on the other hand i know them really well yeah so i know what will surprise them uh, the most awesome. the most recent addition to our group has only been there for 21 years oh okay so the rookie you're probably still hazing him uh, what a new <laughs> <laughs> he's actually my best friend now but <laughs> yeah that's awesome um i guess you're uh so so being in those times you have gotten to be a player uh so who would you say is, is uh, who's a game master that stands out to you that you've played with as, as being some of the best? There was this Italian guy when I went to the Luca convention in uh, 2012, that was just amazeballs. I really, really liked what he did. Um, I tragically cannot remember his name, but he was dressed in a, in an Italian world war II era fascist police uniform, which also impressed me. He had a whole bunch of guys. They were just like, like Sam Spade and flappers. And he happened to be in the, in the, in the fascist police. Right. But Mm -hmm. I mean, he wasn't a fascist. He just like, that was part of his costume. And that was a really good adventure. There was, uh, there was fun guys from Yagoth and a radio program that was alerting them and all kinds of good things. So that was, he may have been the, one of the best keepers I ever played under. Um, That's awesome. Uh, Greg Stafford ran Call of Cthulhu a couple times. He was really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, very creative. Had no idea what the rules were of Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> uh, 
he, he just played the game, you know. So mm. those are some those are some really good ones. Is I got a question. A I yes. got a question for you, Sandy. Who wrote the Lightless Beacon? Because that was the one that was released for Greg Stafford. Um, the Greg Stafford Day. Greg Stafford Day. I can't remember. Is, he is, that? is that a new scenario from Call of Cthulhu? Uh, yeah, it's pretty recent over the last. Oh, couple I have of no years. idea. I mean, I, 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 okay. I own one percent of Chaosium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right, but it's uh because they wanted they bought me out except for one percent because they wanted me to always have a stake in Chaosium. But right. but I'm not actually privy to what they're. I mean, I okay, I know what big things they're working on coming up, right? And I, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, but I don't really, I don't know all their authors stable. I don't, I don't think is lightless speaking Mike Mason. Um, I think it might be He's actually like their top Lake, guy. Like Mike Mason or Paul Frick. Lay Carr. Yeah. Who? Lay Carr with Lynn Hardy. Oh, Lynn Hardy. Yeah. She's really good. Yeah. That was a uh, fun scenario. Rough. Yeah. I, 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 I played a lot with her. She's an amazing uh, game master. Also Ian Livingston from, um, Australia is super good. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Mike Mason and Paul Frick are—I uh, don't know if they're running games anymore. But when they were part of the um, the Cabal of Keepers organization before he became working for Chaosium as the main editor, mm-hmm. they did some really good. They would do things like um, like they would have a game, and there'd be two separate rooms they'd be playing it in that were different that were in different dimensions and yeah. players would periodically fall through holes into the other group where there was people that were like the people they knew but not identical and you had to figure out how to go back and forth between them That's so that awesome. was like two parallel universe call of cthulhu games going on at the same time that was That's so that was insane. like, ex- like <laughs> extreme keepering <laughs> That is yeah, insane. That's really cool. That is kind of a question that I had. And you, you kind of already answered it, but in your mind, what's a couple of attributes to you that, that make a really great keeper? Is it creativity? Is it, you know, immersion for the players or what is it to you that are a couple of things? I think that it is different for different keepers because different people have different strengths. And also because the players you're playing for um, are different. I remember I played this scenario uh, in England, and uh, it was it was it was a haunted house kind of thing, like eighty percent of Call of Duty adventures, you know. And they were really scared. I mean, they were they were actually like like uh, uh, not shaking, but they were acting like they were, the players were acting very frightened about what was going on. You know, like one person dropped some keys, and I said the keys animate and scutter under the bed, and they were just freaked out, and they and they were really. So I said that was a great scenario. So I took it back to California, and played it for my team there, and it just went over like a lead balloon. So, <laughs> so the players had a lot to do with it, um, mm-hmm. and I think different players. I think one of the great game masters I knew was. Uh, as uh, Larry Dottilio sadly now passed away, he was really good at doing um, dialects. So that when he was doing character, I can't do that so well. When he was doing a character, you could tell which that character, which character he was doing, right? Um, I think the, the I think the two major things about being a good keeper are uh, being able to think on your feet. Um, to uh, I think creativity is obviously part of it. You know that, and that also helps if you have a pre-done scenario. You can kind of go through it. And, um, and the third thing I think is that you are sensitive to 
what the you're always keeping a pulse on what the players are doing and thinking and feeling. So you can, so for example, when I had the keys fall and skitter, they were already being kind of nervous, but they hadn't seen anything overtly supernatural yet. And I thought, and I said, this is going to be the thing that puts, sets them over the edge. And it did. I would also say, I'm going to plug a friend of mine, a Seth Skorkowski's uh, uh, YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, I mean, we're, we're buddies now. He comes to my house and we watch movies and play games. And, um, and he has some really good advice on keepering too. Yeah, and, I, which, I at, much, at much greater length than I, I can do in this podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've watched a bunch of his videos. He's got some really great, really great content and good advice. I like a lot of us more generic game master stuff, but some of us specific, but but going back to repeat, think on your feet, be creative and be sensitive to the players and, and what they're feeling and doing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool. Definitely makes tip there, guys. Um, And that's, I guess, kind of related to that. And you, and you mentioned uh, Larry Dottilio and uh, some of these other guys. Um, So, I mean, you know, you're being a guy that's created these, these games that are, um, you know, legendary at this point and some of the biggest games of all time. Uh, You're, you're a a game designer, a creator that most all of us look up to all the modern guys and, you know, looks up to is, Who's somebody in the industry or somebody that you work with? I mean, you've worked with Greg Stafford, Sid Meier, John Romero, Romero, you know, Larry Dottilio. Uh, throughout your career, is there somebody that that was somebody that inspired you that you really looked up to as a as a game designer or just in general? I really, really liked. Uh, he wasn't the game designer. He was the owner of the Ensemble Studios, uh, Tony Goodman. Mm-hmm. He was an amazing uh, leader of the company. And he had some weird ideas. One of them was that um, that you never had to compromise because the two different sides, and not for the usual reason, they could always come to an agreement where both people were happy. And I'm not sure he was actually correct in that assumption, but he worked really hard for that all the time to get both sides to be happy. And he did it more often than I would have thought possible. So that kind of attitude towards things really impressed me. Um, Sid Meier is a, was an amazing game designer. I really liked... Um, uh, working with him, uh, Janelle Jaquez has a real eye for making things fun. Um, I haven't worked with her much since that time, but you know, whatever. Um, she moved out of state, um, but she was really, really uh, good at that. And um, uh, 
Lawrence Schick became one of my best friends working at Microprose Software, so much so that one of my son's middle names is Lawrence after him. So he really had an eye for the for the making games fun and uh, and doable. So those are some guys I work with that I really respect. Cool. That's a uh, yeah. That's amazing. I also one I actually met Shigeru Miyamoto once, and oh, really? um, and I I was I was so tongue tied that I. I said something like super lame, like I'm a game designer too, and shook his hand and I didn't want to wash my hand. I did, but I didn't want to. And I was just so impressed on meeting him because, because I mean, the guy that pushed Pikmin through a giant company, that guy, <laughs> he clangs when he walks because who, no company would have ever wanted Pikmin, you know, and he did it. <laughs> so I'm like, plus he's done so many other things. Right. But, uh, Right. So he was kind of like a, a a guy I was really impressed by. Um, oh, that's amazing. Well, not to sound even lamer, but who is that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Have you not played uh, Super Mario or Zelda? Oh, oh my gosh. Come on, Donovan. He's like, he's like, he did all the stuff for, uh, for uh, Nintendo. My I was son, asking. I was asking for Pete. I wasn't asking. Oh, for you did more. Anyway, <laughs> my I, son I, I dressed up as him for school one day. They had to do. No way. Yeah, they had to do a thing where you picked a great innovator and you dressed up as them, and like it was a history lesson. But he dressed up as him and went to school <laughs> as Shigeru Miyamoto. So he is a great innovator, no doubt about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. We and need he, a new Donovan on our show. He's guy, right? He was he was polite and bowed like a jet. He didn't. He didn't look exceptional, except knowing who he is, he radiated, uh, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. I wouldn't, well, there, there I you wouldn't go, Pete. wash my hand either. Yeah. I would have been in the same boat. <laughs> and um, and I, it's kind of funny that, like, uh, I mean, obviously, like, that the, these game designers, that they all, all of them have become such big names and kind of these uh, celebrities. I mean, yourself included, obviously. Um, but something you got in right at the beginning of all this of really kind of the nascent game industry here. Like what was that getting into it at the beginning? And you're pretty young. You jumped about, off uh, and... Board games or role-playing games or computer games. Yeah. Role-playing games. And... Role-playing games. Yeah. Um, it was, it was very much the wild West. Everyone liked each other unless, except for Dave Casciano, whom everyone hated. And, um, <laughs> and, and take a note. And everyone, he was reprehensible. There's many stories about Dave. But, uh, but, He'll be the uh, villain in our we next would, series. We, would, uh, we were friendly to each other. We tried to work together and, and come up with clever ideas. And, and you could do a role-playing game out of some crazy idea that you just had like in the bathtub and then put it in a Ziploc bag and sell it at a convention and sell a couple thousand copies. It was just like... Mm -hmm. Incredible. And and the art, well, you've seen the original D&D art, how terrible it was. Yeah. Everyone had terrible. <laughs> Call of Cthulhu was amazing because we actually had good art, better than the original RuneQuest art. Call right. of Cthulhu got Gene Day, a noted science uh, or comic artist to do the stuff. So that's one of the features that I'm always proud of with, with the Call of Cthulhu. And actually my other games I've done is that we always had good art. And I've tried to focus on that a lot. For example, mm -hmm. I don't know if any of you guys have played the Age of Empire series, but... Age of Empires yep. is a real-time strategy game, so it's about little tiny armies running around shooting each other. So we do Age of Empires 3, which has musketeers, you know, and uh, so it's not like super sexy, but we liked it. And what we did is we had the goal that we were going to win the prize for best graphics at E3 with a art. And, and of course, 
it's always shooters that get the best graphics, right? Shooters mm-hmm. always got the best graphics because RTS just there's too many guys on the screen at once and you couldn't get best graphics in RTS. And we said we were going to do it and, and we did, you know, because there, people were looking at it and there was, we'd have cannons firing and the houses would be flying apart and people would be setting th- th- things would burn down and the musketeers would line up and fire volleys and it would just looked so good. You have Indians shooting fire arrows into the huts that uh, that that it that we did it. And I was very, very proud of that. Obviously, I didn't do the art, but I was trying to do that. And if you've seen my newer games like uh, Cthulhu Wars or Planet Apocalypse mm-hmm. or those things, you can see that I have kept up the uh, feel because I think that if you have a really amazing art that that uh in the in the game or in the materials that it can help draw the players into it more especially if the art is evocative not giving away secrets but like this is what's going on look don't want to know more about this shadowy things with tentacles and whatever so mm-hmm. um so i think that's that's something that i found really useful and that's actually one of the major troubles i have with uh doing zoom um uh, role playing which i have done nonetheless because you mm-hmm. know the black plague is spread across the world, but I don't have a table full of figures to move things around and uh, have, and I see the players getting scared and trying to like not be the guy in the front and um, <laughs> you know, and then I'll pull out some awful thing, you know, like my, uh, like, like uh, I have some really terrifying miniatures in my, uh, in my storage and I'll pull one of these things out and then they just like their hearts sink. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I say, well, it doesn't really look like this. Cause it has like more tentacles and stuff, but, it's yeah, symbolic it's, of what it's like. It's kind of like this, but way worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is that was something I was going to point out, and specifically in the the Cthulhu Mythos Five E book, is the artwork is just gorgeous. I love it. And that's and really annoying. I didn't guys, do it, but I, you know, I found yeah. it. <laughs> But and I mean, insisted like, on having good art and like <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and you know, and your love for for I mean the quality and your love for the uh I mean the, the source material, obviously, like that really comes through in the book and the fact that and you know, I was gonna I mean all the all the products I have gotten, I've got two more books. I got your I, I bought your guys shelf breaker deal you just did because that was oh, incredible. Cool. Uh Thank you. so I got the whole thing and I'm just like geeking out so bad over these books because they're uh, once I got, you know, I, I mean, saw the art's was fabulous, like, right? Oh, it's, the, it's the characters phenomenal. are so good. You can you can be a Zoog. How cool is that? Right. <laughs> was yeah. anyone a Zoog in your game that you ran? No, we didn't play no. the Zoog. That was that is one of our favorite things where the races. But one of our Cats. definite highlights was yep, Sam played the cat. Yeah, I got to play the, sure cat. the cat. Was a cat. <laughs> not like you know, not like a super cat. It's a cat. I know. I, I yeah, I kept that. trying to act good. like I was a super cat, and Alex had to put me back in the rails. Like, no, dude, you're literally just a house cat. Yeah, I mean, you're you're smart because it's the re- yeah. And then there's the there's the ghouls who are mm-hmm. like not wholly benign. Yeah, <laughs> Pete Pete played the ghoul. Pete played the ghouls, and of course, since be... sorry, go Pete's on. always a since Pete's that always that a contrarian, me. he had to play a ghoul bard because he had to be a disgusting thing that's supposed to be charming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and no, one, no one wants to hang with the ghouls. Yeah. <laughs> I will admit, I... for my fair lady, you know. <laughs> well, I remember. I remember another feature of um, of keeping the horror in gaming for mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu, and that is that I always play the monsters as malign. 
Right. And I've seen lots of Call of Cthulhu games where they decide that the Yithians or the Fungi or some other race that's maybe not quite as evil as Cthulhu is or the old ones are like are like OK to work with. And that, I think, moves direct like right angles away from the horror. And you have to keep those things, even mm-hmm. if they're not evil in the earthly sense, they still it's going to be bad for humans to deal with the old ones. It's going to be bad for humans to deal with the Ithians, who, after all, literally exterminate entire species on a regular basis. Right. Right. And yeah, uh, so I, that's I, one of the things that, that I try to do is make sure that the I, I kind of violated it a little bit with having the ghouls um, uh, not just be evil. But Lovecraft did it first in DreamQuest. So, yeah, it's true. They, they are a kind of a little neutral at times yeah. in, in some of the myths. But they're always so. creepy. I mean, they're always looking to eat. Um, right. Randolph Carter or stuff. So mm-hmm. I did. Your ghoul was the same way. I yeah. did. Uh, at one point, uh, we had to figure something out about what you know the the antagonist was doing, and my my solution was I ate some dead guy's brain so that I could get his memories. And <laughs> makes perfect uh, sense. You know, yeah, yeah. If there's a ghoul in the party, then you never have to bury a dead party member. Right. I like that. There you go. Yeah, and that also that I do want to. That was that's such an awesome mechanic in that in the book the that ability for the ghoul to get the memories of of the corpse that he eats that was, like that was my idea oh that's <laughs> i got oh, so i got good. it from that was awesome. Pickman's model which mm-hmm. is the first lovecraft story i ever read i was eight and i and, <laughs> and, and, and the ghouls are ca- are cackling over the the lore they're getting from going to the old graves and i was like mm-hmm. what kind of lore are they getting from old graves and if, over the years i said it's not just getting like people's signet rings and stuff. They're right. getting something else. And so then I came up with, they're getting memories, you know, they're learning, yeah. they're getting knowledge. And that made the ghouls, I think, scarier and more interesting. Literally homo sapiens. Um, that was, that was one of the thing I liked about the ghoul. Like you said, making the, the characters malign and with the ghoul, like they're humanoid. Um, I played a bard obviously, which is ridiculous, but yes. that yes. Aspect, <laughs> I just keep that in the decaying finery. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually that exactly what it was. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Pull out your rape here. It is dripping with fungus. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like you're in his head. You do exactly, <laughs> That's exactly what went down. Yeah uh that's yeah that's phenomenal um but yeah that was yeah, one of those never wants to shelter on your shoulder yeah <laughs> that's very true um uh, the cat was a ton of fun we sam was also uh, just hilarious playing his cat yeah um which oh, is a ton I, of fun playing the yeah, cat, I mean, a cat so or a ghoul or a zoog is obviously on the face of it like hilarious right but mm-hmm. to be fair D is a more hilarious game than call of Cthulhu. Uh, Sense, no, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, if you play the cat and Call of Cthulhu, I think it would spoil the spoil the fun. So this might seem like a stupid question, but my question to you is: What do you like playing more, or what do you like better, D and D or Call of Cthulhu? <laughs> I know it so seems you're like asking a... me if I like my own house rules better than someone else's rules. Yeah. Yes. Is, yeah, I, think I, like of, I know you're going to need to think about it hard. I <laughs> <laughs> um, told Donovan not to ask that question. I really That's haven't fine. played D&D very much since um, 1979 um, when it yeah. kind of got oh, replaced. Wow. Well, what happened is in 1973, when D&D first came out, I got a copy and played it with my friends. And, um, and we really liked it. And then what we would do is that was in the heyday of role-playing games. So mm. every few months, some of the role-playing system was coming out. So we'd get 
we'd try out one of those. So we played D and D and then we'd also play, um, uh, <clears throat> um, the fantasy trip. And then, and then we go back to D and D. Then we play D and D. Then we play Traveler. And then we go back to D and D. Then we D and D. Then we play D and D. Then we started playing RuneQuest. And then RuneQuest took over. We never went back to D and D because we liked RuneQuest so much. Right. And then RuneQuest, of course, is kind of an ancestor, sort of, or an uncle to Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. So by the time, so that by the time Call of Cthulhu came along, I hadn't played D and D for a couple of years because I liked it. I actually went back and played old type D&D at a convention here in Cal- in uh, Texas, which was designed for old school guys. So they're playing original D&D, like from 1974. And I played it with them and it was so dumb. Like I just kept making fun of everything. And um, <laughs> <laughs> they were saying, oh, the princess needs to be rescued. And I said, I'm a hobbit, right? And they said, well, yeah. I said, I don't care about some human princess. take this money and do the ransom i said i say we take the money and go up into the hills and buy a boat and go somewhere else and and i i I didn't want to do anything on the quest but uh yeah unless you got any hobbit babes back that might have been the uh the the game master for uh uh, getting my goat but (laughs) so i've got a question um when you were first getting started creating the call of cthulhu uh did you ever imagine it would grow into what it is today no, I thought it was going to be a small cult game that that the few that like if we were lucky, the 10,000 people who had ever heard of Lovecraft would play and then it would go through one edition, maybe two and then fade away because no one knew who Lovecraft was. So how could they be a fan of this game about him? Look at the title. Right. Call of Cthulhu. I didn't want to call it that. Who heard of Cthulhu? Right. Call it Nemesis or Dark Worlds. Those are the ideas we had coming up. And uh, but no, we're going to call it Cthulhu. It's people that know about Lovecraft know about it. And then instead of like being obscure, it actually spread Lovecraft's knowledge abroad. I mean, so many people have come to me and say, hey, I started reading Lovecraft because of your game. Right. You know, so uh, in fact, I got an award um, uh, at the Necronomicon Film Convention Film Festival. It's a cool award. It's like a foot tall. Wendy? Oh, she's not around. I, I'm going to take one second. You can talk yeah. about something else. I'll be right back. No, you're good. Absolutely. I would love to see this. We agreed. Yeah gonna be rad yeah sandy's stepping out to grab his his award his award Never necronomicon award i i i just called on my expensive trophy wife to uh <laughs> oh, she was the award what? so my guess is it a, is it a lamp that looks like years, a leg? so um so this is so anyway this award what happened is that i went to the convention and they said we're giving you an award i said great what why and they said <laughs> Well, we gave, they, they, they'd given it to them at that time. I was the second one. This is So this is the award. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that nice? Cool. That's awesome. That's, yeah. that's super cool. Those that's who can't really cool. see it because you're listening to the podcast, it's um, it's it's Lovecraft. It's a, like a little bronze statue of Lovecraft, and it says, the Howie Award for Lifetime Achievement. See Sandy Peterson, which is, of course, not my name, but whatever. I know it's... <laughs> <laughs> But what they said was that what happened in 1981, um, Call of came out and knowledge of Call of started seeping throughout the hobby games um, uh, crowd, right? I mean, everyone, by mid-1980s, everyone at TSR, the D&D company, they were exclusively playing Call of Cthulhu in their, in their own games. They weren't playing D&D anymore. <laughs> I, I know this by talking to them or them telling me, right? So then... Um, of 1985, 
uh, reanimator comes out. Right. And and then Stuart Gordon's movies, and then these start seeping through the film nerd culture, uh, knowledge of Lovecraft. And basically the argument that the Necronomicon guys made was that these two forces moving through pop culture is what made Lovecraft known. And now Cthulhu's a meme and everyone knows who Lovecraft is and right. people try to cancel him and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> Yeah. So you know, you know, you're made when someone tries to cancel you. Oh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's what we're waiting for. So, so Lovecraft is known, and some of the credit, I'm proud to say, is me. Yeah. Though I didn't expect it, I didn't plan on it. <laughs> I'm really happy it happened. Yeah. You know? I mean, I'd, I'd for sure say that's true. I've, uh, I know that really my love for Lovecraft and Cthulhu came from from the Call of Cthulhu game. And the funny thing is, is it, it started when I was a kid and I didn't even play the game as a kid. I just would see it around and it looked so interesting and cool to me yeah, that that's cool what covers, made me start. The bright yeah, exactly. colors and the tentacles and the Tom mm-hmm. Sullivan the, art. Go back right. to that artwork. And, yeah. That artwork yeah, that draws yeah. you in. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's really what drew me into Lovecraft in the first place was just seeing these games and being like, what is this? I want to know more about it. And you know, when you're a kid, how most people, you pick up one of these game rules and it's basically Greek. <laughs> well, I actually got into gaming games. that same way. I was eight years old. My dad had a copy of the Gettysburg board game and he mm. lost the rules. So all I had was counters and a map of Gettysburg. And I would like pour over this for hours trying to figure out how it worked. And that kind of prepped me. So when I finally encountered actual tabletop games, besides like Clue and Stratego, that I was prepped to want to, uh, to do with them. And then that, Playing those old war games led directly to, you know, Planet Apocalypse, right? And Halo Wars and Age of Empires. Mm-hmm. Man, that's so cool. Um, and uh, I <laughs> kind of something you touched on just a second ago. Uh, you know, you, you know, you you made it when you got canceled. Um, <laughs> is I guess that's something you've kind of been dealing with from the beginning. I was going to say that. You know, nowadays it seems like kind of a new thing for for us, but you know, I guess back in the eighties you had the Satanic Panic. You know, we did and have then... the Satanic Panic, which which fortunately for me mostly focused on D and D for some reason because I guess they were too ignorant to know much about Call of Cthulhu. Right. But occasionally get a buy mention. I also got pretty pretty, well for pretty hard canceled in the nineties with Doom. Um, right. Uh, yeah, with the senators the... Lieberman and um, Tipper Gore held up copies of Doom in Congress and denounced me. So that was pretty great. Um, wow. It was that's, weird that's that like it was Democrats, too, not Republicans. So it was like, right. okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> I guess they want the nanny state or something. But, uh, but yeah, the satanic panic thing was that was, and you know, now, of course, back then also the uh, Lovecraft being a guy having been racist in the 1930s didn't get people up in arms about how terrible that was, you right. know. But, but my response to that, if you wanted to talk about it, is always the same, which is that, uh, in in the first place, racism is a belief, not a crime. Therefore, the cure is education, not punishment. Mm-hmm. And my second statement, which is also accurate, is that Lovecraft got less racist over time. And that's the direction we want all racists to be. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, and, and, and his and stupid cat that everyone points out with the terrible name. <laughs> yeah. This was his cat when he was nine years old. Right. That's when he had that cat. Yeah. I don't know if he even named it himself, right? But, right? but if all of us were going to be plagued for our uh, things we said when we were nine, then like 
we'd all be in jail for life, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, Sam, yeah. Sam especially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is Lovecraft too, that, I mean, if, if you read through Lovecraft's biography and you read about him, like it, it's obvious Lovecraft was a guy that had a lot of issues, you know? Oh I mean? yeah. Like, so, but, but he brought it into, uh, you know, it, it worked <laughs> writing. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like his intense fear of the other, right. Um, yeah. that manifested so much in his life all over the place, almost really fueled the creation of this whole, you know, cosmic yeah. horror. But it's concept. also remarkable how rarely racist elements, I mean, they do appear in his stories, but they're mm-hmm. not that common in the stories. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't feed them in. He just, he has that in his belief in the back of his head, but then the story is about something else. Well, right. you said in one of your videos that he was um, a racist, of, a scientific racist. What did you mean by that? What I meant was, so, so um, like right now, what we say is all humans are equal and there's no difference between us, right? Certainly all humans are of equal worth, right? But mm-hmm. Lovecraft would have argued that there could be differences between us besides skin color and eye feature and hair. Um, I don't believe he's correct in saying that there's great differences in terms of like uh, temperament or, yeah. or intelligence. Or for example, Abra- I always had Abraham Lincoln's take on it. Someone argued to him that, that blacks weren't as well-educated or as smart as whites. And he said, that might be, but what you have to look at, that's, this is Lincoln talking, not me, right? But he said, right. but, you, but you have to go by each individual. This yeah. black guy is smarter than this white guy. That makes him smarter, right? You mm-hmm. don't go with all blacks are dumber than all whites because they're not, or all blacks are smarter. There's like, there's a range of both people. Right. You yeah, know? It's, yeah. It, there's yeah. diversity in thought. There's diversity. Exactly. Right? And, and so you have to go by the individual. And that was his argument. And that's where racism fundamentally fails is it's not going, it's not going by the individual. Right. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, well, I do. Well, I do love more complex because humans aren't innately bad ever. So mm-hmm. <laughs> in my opinion. Well, I, I do love your video you made for that specific question. Is HP Lovecraft racist? <laughs> so many that, kids, everyone loved that. They got re- re- <laughs> Well, it got me because it was it, it had the timestamp on there for like a minute thirty, almost two minutes long, and I'm like, I'm like, okay, he's got this great explanation for it. <laughs> and it's just, is HP Lovecraft racist? Yes. Yep. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had all those credits to make it look like it was longer, and the you credits are full of jokes, right? But uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, he's <laughs> yeah, racist. And now, can we move on it. and talk about if Cthulhu is scary? Yes, thank right. you. Yeah, exactly. well, it's just it's just taking people with with you know as nuanced human beings. You know, like people have faults and they have failings and they have strengths and you know have have things that they can contribute. You know, and it's complicated. And like you said, taking people as an individual and and looking at a body of someone's whole entire life also, and not just taking a snapshot of where they were at one point and saying that's who that person was forever. Yeah. Well, sure. You know, it's, it's like the principle of like the Nazis would say that all Jews are bad, right? That was a principle they lived by, but like Lovecraft in some of his letters seems to have subscribed to that, except he married a Jew. Right. And, mm. and he had friends that were Jews and he obviously didn't, Fully subscribe, and when he talked about it in letters, he often said it, that the culture of uh, of people from Lebanon is, or in that area, Palestine, is not as awesome as Northern European culture with the mighty Vikings. And that's like, here's this guy that faints when he gets below thirty degrees outside. <laughs> what a mighty Viking! Right? But uh, so I think it's kind of uh, him trolling in his letters, right? Because obviously he couldn't walk the walk right. of, of being this yeah. mighty feud barbarian. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, this is a guy that wanted to be called grandpa when he was in his thirties because he thought it was cool to be old. Um, <laughs> and he died yeah. young. Let's not forget that he was, he died right. uh, at the age of 47. And, uh, oh. and he, like I said, he'd already tempered his, uh, his beliefs by then he may have done if he'd lived another 20 years which is completely plausible to, i mean i'm 20 years older than lovecraft and mm-hmm. i'm alive so he could have done it right maybe not drinking a gallon of black coffee every day like he did <laughs> that might have been the problem should have got on that word of wisdom train huh right. <laughs> right. right i know as i stick to diet dr pepper is my vice of choice <laughs> Same. um where did uh being a fellow uh, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints here, um, where did you want to assume all you guys were? <laughs> <laughs> well, where did you serve your mission? Los Angeles. Nice. My wife served in, in Lisbon, Hills. Portugal. Oh. No oh. way. <laughs> I served in Porto, Portugal. Cool. She was she was there in um, from seventy six to seventy eight. And when she went, there there weren't any other sister missionaries, (laughs) so she had to, like, open up areas, like, by herself with a companion that didn't know anything. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's always fun. She also was raised in (laughs) Chile until she was 11. I mean, she's not Chilean. She's American, but she was living there from the age of 5 to 11, so she speaks. I I say, you speak fluent Spanish. She says, I speak Spanish like an (laughs) 11-year-old. She speaks Spanish. She speaks Portuguese. She kind of gets them mixed up. That's Um, not hard. And she she took six years of French, so she speaks four languages. That's wow. Awesome. wow. Wow. Which is well, awesome. Way to yeah. catch. What a catch you got there. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, like I said, my expensive trophy wife, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I and I got one more question for you. I, as you, like, obviously you play Call of Cthulhu. Um, and I'm sure you play tons of scenario written by other authors and stuff like that. Do you have a favorite Call of Cthulhu scenario? or at least one that particularly you enjoy that comes to mind real quick. Cause we would love to play a Sandy Peterson recommended scenario in our show. Or something you'd like, I to think see a really strong scenario would be mm-hmm. for Alex. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the scenario. I'll be right back in a second. <laughs> All right. I have a very specific one for him to try. Do, 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 Buckle do, up, do, Alex. Do, 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 do. I know. I'm ready. It's going to be like a 200 page scenario. And you've already been committed. I mean, like, no. oh, yeah, you got to have been challenged by Sandy himself. You have to do this. <laughs> we call this scenario the Keeper Crusher. <laughs> I'm ready for oh, this. There it is. Guys. Ooh, Ooh, yeah. I just Ooh. bought that, actually. Don't read okay. it, Pete. So here's yeah, the thing. Pete literally so bought you that up. You mentioned it. <laughs> Seth, so Alex, if you look on Seth's channel, mm-hmm. you will see a article where he talks about how to use the scenario panacea. Okay. In the very best way. I'm extremely proud of the scenario panacea. Um, he points out some things that would make it better for a keeper who's not me. Um and it's not a super long, it's like a couple nights tops. And uh, okay. so tell your players not to look up that, uh, um, that right. video. Yeah, and I think fantasy is really good. One of the best scenarios I ever ran is also from this. These are like my top ones. Uh, Hotel mm. Hell, um, which was really awesome because I played it. It was, um, it was June 6th in, in uh, 2006 in Germany. And um, 
they all, all the, 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 I just finished a small game convention and they said, we want to play Call of Cthulhu with Sandy. So I put together a scenario that day. Okay. So they're playing it. And as they play it, like zombies are starting to rise up and they're like, oh, it was a Cthulhu scenario. I said, it is. Don't worry about it. And they gradually realized <laughs> that, 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 that the entire ring of fire around the Pacific Ocean was starting to like unscrew and things were happening everywhere. There were giant monsters appearing and stuff. Where they were, there was this mm-hmm. dead rising. And eventually, they and I said, "When does this happen?" I said, "It happens. It happens a week ago our time. So it's like in June first, and then it, then it came to a climax on June sixth. And at that point, they realized that it's today, and it's six six oh six, and it was the <laughs> end of the world. <laughs> and uh, I can't I can't really oh, repeat geez. that because it's not going to be six six oh six for a while, but. Uh, but they like their minds were blown. It was a very effect. That was that was the scene I wanted to, to make them despair at the end, while the horde of things from hell came pouring through the uh, <laughs> the basement of the hotel they were working at. But that was a uh, that was a great uh, a great moment in Call of Cthulhu when they realized that it was today and it was six six six. That's amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> That's what. But, I, but Panacea has the advantage that that. that uh, Seth has some tips and you can mod you can modify it yourself. You're probably as good a game master as Seth is, you know, but he's just very uh uh vocal and well spoken. Um and I think oh. they will like that scenario. Yeah. It's oh, modern. I don't know about that. Almost. It's he's a, talking about me, just to yeah. clarify. It's about a medical about right, company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um almost oh, all my stuff I play in modern times. There's a few I'll go with some other time period, but I don't have a regular thing happening in the twenties. Cool. All right, Panacea, guys. That one's up and coming. Anyway. Um, and yeah, and um, our in show. Fact, if you in fact, let me know when you're doing that one because I want to hear that podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I've only ever run it myself. Right. You yeah, know? and and um, what we do with our podcast too is we actually give it kind of the full audio drama treatment. So oh, cool. we well, edit it. We get, yeah, music, sound effects. Like we we spend a ton of time editing it up. So nice. Um, what do you use for produced. your music? Uh, we actually. Movies? we write a lot of our own or oh, yeah? Um, yeah, we write a bunch of our own uh, as we've, as we've gone on the first like season, two seasons, most of that's all our own music. As we've gone on, I've just bought licenses for stuff that we can find, you know, humble bundle always will have these like game music packs on yeah. there and I'll pick them up, you know, that are licensed for commercial use. So I'll grab those whenever I can. And um, dark fantasy studios is one that has a lot of a, uh, uh, really solid stuff that we end up using. But, a lot of old horror movies are um, public domain and have creepy sound. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to play, of course, I don't have to worry about ownership when I play at home is, uh, is mm-hmm. movies by the Italian band Goblin. Yeah. They're not movies, but songs by them. If you've heard of those guys. I have that's it. A, but, that's an actual yeah. band name of the Gob- Goblin. <laughs> called that's Goblin. Amazing. They're from the 1970s and 80s, and they did most of the music for the great Italian horror of that time period. <laughs> cool. Hmm. I check that so out. It's modern that. electronic sounding, but it's really creepy. It's like Suspiria, Deep Red, uh, Tenebrae, mm. a lot of Dario Argento's movies. And if you haven't cool. seen Dario Argento's movies, then when I come to Utah, I will make you watch one. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. We're there. Movie oh, man, night, game night. On, dude. We're in. Um, and I also watch you Haruko Goblin Hunter, which is super awesome Japanese movie. One of the characters is really obviously a Call of Cthulhu investigator. Yeah, <laughs> awesome, awesome. Um, well, Sandy, and we don't want to keep you too long. We've already been you know longer than we'd even planned already. It's been uh, it's been awesome. It's having only a little over an hour. 
So, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for this time. I'm happy to do it again. Um, uh, yeah, we're happy to have you on anytime. We'd love yeah. to have you on. You're up yeah. for it. Maybe like if the Chaosium uh, fails at Sandroll and does another Chaosium Con, you might show up there because there was a lot of people playing Call of Cthulhu at that place. Yeah. Um, That'd be a blast. And what's it called? Chaosium Con. Chaosium Con. The name of the con. Yeah. Yeah. I know what the name is. I couldn't, I, I couldn't hear. Oh, never mind. I'm done. All right. <laughs> Sorry. I broke the rule. Yeah, Sandy, you can probably tell that uh, we're all brothers and, you know, like you said, the people you've been playing with for forever. <laughs> so, I don't know if you know this or not, but I actually produce, um, the, you know, the awesome figures I make for Cthulhu Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, there's a figure line I'm doing using those figures for it's the official Call of Cthulhu figure line. So mm-hmm. I have cool. done figures in PVC of almost every Lovecraftian monster, many of them never done before, like Glocky. Wow, that's amazing! Oh, nice, that's awesome. But, uh, we just or, pick, do we pick yeah. those up on your website? You you can yes, awesome. you can also well, find them at better miniature market places like that. But oh, great, uh, cool. We love we love miniature market. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah. that Christmas sale. Too. Right, they buy a lot of stuff from us, so they're my heroes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like them for more than just that, but that you know that helps. <laughs> it definitely helps. <laughs> it's it's helps. definitely a plus. They always have a killer Black Friday sale every year. Oh yeah, yeah. I always make myself yeah. poor on the black the miniature market Black Friday <laughs> yes. sale. I'm saving. You tell your wife I'm saving so much money by spending hundreds of dollars. The more you buy, the more you save. In one scenario ever. <laughs> uh, well, uh, one thing I always actually do from that is I I mean buy board games for my kids for Christmas and and like we so I I kind of stock up and do a lot of that and that's that's awesome. It's a ton of fun. I love doing that. Well, we have a kids line at Peterson Games too. So, uh, games like Evacuate and cool, absolutely. Yeah, I was you checking your board a spaceship with alien monsters trying to escape. Yeah. Oh, we have we have one big question about your your products the uh, yes. the sweet leather bound Cthulhu Mythos for five E. When is that coming back? <laughs> we want it. <laughs> you may have to find it on eBay. <laughs> oh yeah, are you guys not doing yeah. another production of it? Um, I don't think we're going to do another production of it. No. All right. Oh, all right. Oh, yeah. eBay it is. I know. I just had the PDF because I was waiting for that to come in stock. <laughs> you do hardback, right? It's, yeah. it doesn't have, it's not made of goat skin, but it's still... <laughs> no, it was goat skin. I, I need was it really? That. Yes. Wow. No way. I that goat skin. Yeah, it turns out that goat skin is fairly inexpensive and, you know, yeah. maybe I mean, because it was if... found in China. Oh, <laughs> they have lots of goats there. But uh, <laughs> it's, it's probably just leftover from some, you know, it, it's especially cheap if you got it leftover from your sacrifices, right? Yes. Right. <laughs> um, well, awesome, Sandy. It's so good uh, having you on. Um, anything you want to uh, uh, throw out here at the end? Uh, projects you got coming up, things you're working on, things on the horizon you want? I'm working on about? a board game called Call of Cthulhu Terror Paths, which is essentially mm. a board game reflecting the Call of Cthulhu experience. Or actually, to be more precise, the climactic end scenario in a long campaign is what it usually mm-hmm. is. And they're really varied. They're, I use, I use um, there'll be a map, like the Silver Twilight Lodge is one of the maps. And there's multiple scenarios that all happen in the lodge with different things. One of them, that there's fungi from Yagoth and Valine. One of them, there's a subsect of the lodge that's trying to evolve into Yogg-Sothoth, you know, um, there's uh, adventures, there's the Forest of Resurrection, one of the other maps where one of the adventures is there's a yellow sign rave in the woods. You have to go rescue the teenagers. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
but you're you're playing characters running through it as the doom mounts up. It's kind of my reaction to uh, to Arkham Horror because Arkham mm-hmm. Horror, though I like it and I actually worked on the first Arkham Horror, it it always is kind of like not bland, but it's always kind of the same plot. But but in this, but one of the things that's cool about Terror Pass is that when you start playing it, you literally don't know how to win the scenario. You have to figure it out as you play, which is uh, I cool. think interesting. So you're actually trying to explore and work things out and and uh, get the things you need as you go through, which I think is fun. And uh, so that's something that we have coming up. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And then Uh, we also have my space game hyperspace for trying desperately to get out this year, um, which Mm -hmm. is cool because as you know, Lovecraft's monsters, many of them are actually aliens. Right. Mm -hmm. So of the 25 alien species in hyperspace, five of them are actually Lovecraftians, like old ones, star spawn, fungi from Yagoth and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, so you can be a Cthulhu flying through space. Awesome. (laughs) <laughs> or you know one of the other 20 aliens but uh <laughs> uh, well that's awesome yeah so listeners are great archimites uh keep an ear out and eye out for those things coming down the pipeline and thanks for listening and sandy thanks so much uh for taking the time to spend with us on this it's been just absolute blast absolute pleasure thank you sandy we'll have yeah. arthur contact you next time i come up absolutely Sweet. awesome <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your connection right Yep. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's who we've been in contact with. Mm-hmm. He's got the four granddaughters, the oldest of which has now played Call of Duty. Nice. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how old is she? 12. There you go. To get so age. Young, perfect she age, did not yeah. play a super hardcore Call of Duty. Ah. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it was for beginners. Yeah. Right. I play, I play with, oh, my- I did play Call of Duty with her, a very light Call of Duty, which was based on the Al Adamson movie, Blood of Ghastly Horror, which she really liked. So awesome. Cool. So cool. I got a lot of good movies to watch now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's not a good movie. Blood of Ghastly Horror is not good. <laughs> See, but for us, that's almost even better. We love, we love our crappy movies. Yeah, we have a crappy movie. We used to do a crappy movie night and watch things like Bad Taste and Troll 2 and all that fun stuff. Have you seen so. Brainiac? No. Brainiac. We haven't no. seen that one. A Mexican movie from the, then it will change your life. Yeah, oh we're writing that down. It is so risible. Also, have you seen The Horror of Party Beach? No. No. Uh-uh. Who's so, taking notes? It's also I got them down. I got Phantasm too, so I married a monster from outer space. <laughs> Brainiac. What was the last one you just said? The horror of Party Beach. It's a combination of of underwater monsters and oh beach, yes, beach blanket party. <laughs> One of my yes. favorite moments is when the, the monsters have risen up and attacked a slumber party full of teen, teenage girls, and they've killed twenty of them. Okay, and the main girl, who's the heroine, didn't go to the slumber party for some reason. And then the next day, she's sad because twenty of her friends have been eaten by monsters, and her boyfriend <laughs> says. Well, how long are you going to mope around? Let's go do something. And then she goes, okay. And this is the morning after. What <laughs> a boyfriend. Right? Yeah, so that was pretty great. Also, it turns out the underwater monsters died. explode when they're exposed to silicon, which uh, I guess makes sense. <laughs> this is right up our Oh, alley. man. Yeah, that, that's a movie that would never work now. It is, it is highly entertaining. And I will also recommend, if you haven't seen it, The Brain That Wouldn't Die. <laughs> I love that just because of the name. Which is just barking mad and great. Brain that wouldn't die. I got it. Check them out. Let me know what you think. And then I'll show you some actually scary things when I show up. Maybe we should do a uh, a whole whole series of Sandy Peterson's recommendations uh, for movies. Movie reviews. (laughs) Arkham Files. (laughs) Watches Sandy Peterson's movie movie list. 
on my website, I had a series for a while saying great obscure horror, where I talked about 10 obscure horrors, not all of them movies, but some of them movies. Actually, one mm-hmm. of them, what I suggested, and it was mostly because I have non-American fans, I recommended like spook alleys and haunted houses. They, because most Europeans have no idea that, that those exist in America and that they're pretty great, yeah. actually. Right. Yeah. You know? um, I know. Uh, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks a ton, dude. Like this has been really like pl- I'm really new to this game. But the first time I played the game was when I was recording our first scenario, Mr. Corbett. That's and, the way to go in. Go in cold. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's we, how to do it. And we oh did. My gosh, I was so excited about it. It was it was <laughs> I never did anything d and I never had any tabletop RPGs. I mean, I love video game RPGs, but this was the first tabletop I did. And it brings a whole nuance to my adult life, which is I'm finding more rare um, to have nuance in your life because you're not a kid to have all the magic. Everything's new to them. And so thanks for doing that. Thanks for putting this together. I don't mean to be cheesy or anything, but it's been. No, no. So I mean, I, I never grew up. Right. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, good you're, company. You're one of the, one of the lucky ones. <laughs> the only full-time right. job I've had ever has been a game designer. So I have no idea. So I assume that's a really weird life, but I don't have any other life to compare it to. Mm-hmm. So uh, awesome. want to be a mailman. I mean, probably the walking around would do me good, you know, Uh, but but then my company would go under. So go. (laughs) So no dice. Well, I was this close to getting Sandy Peterson to work for the post office. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Move meaning to the word going postal. He's just going to, he's just going to turn it into a new game. I look forward to meeting you in person someday. Yes. And Yog Sothoth Neblod's in. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Arkham Files. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Seriously, the conversation was a few days ago, and I'm still kind of geeking out about it. Keep an eye and ear out for our D&D Mythos session. It will be out soon. But while you're waiting, go over and check out our website at www.arkhamrpg.com. We have some cool merch there available for purchase. Sign up for Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Arkham Files for rad bonus content and an invite to our exclusive Gilded server. Check out our social media pages as well on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And last but definitely not least, go check out Sandy's products at www.petersongames.com. Go buy Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for 5e and Pathfinder. Go buy his other games. They're awesome too. Thanks again for listening. We will see you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.